I'm Mel Stewart, and this is the Swim Swam Podcast. Joining me today is a very special guest. This is, this is a man who I idolized as a child. This is pure hero worship today. Today, we have 1980 and 1984 Olympian, world record holder, star of the, among the stars of the famous documentary film, 16 Days of Glory, three-time primetime Emmy Award winner from the most beloved show, The Amazing Race, and the host of a podcast, which you've got to drop in on. We're going to talk about it right here, Sports Life Balance. Today, we're talking to John Moffat. Hey, Mel. It's always good to get caught up with you. I always enjoy our conversations. so much going on in your life it's like i don't know how we're gonna unpack this i think we need 10 hours are you will you commit to 10 hours on the swim swipe podcast i i i might poop out i'm a little older than you so my uh, endurance doesn't isn't like what it used to be I, I'm, I'm i'm calling you out folks so if you're listening to this on the download i'm just going to tell you right now this guy is a cue ball he is as bald as he can be when, when did you shave it when did you go full shave uh, it was probably the day <clears throat> when my hair got a little long and my wife told me that I looked like Newt Gingrich. It kind of poofed out on the side. And, and uh, she said, you know, I'm, I'm behind you just shaving it all off. So it was probably about five years ago that I made that decision. And I haven't missed paying for haircuts. Well, you're, you're a sweetheart. And what, what I love about you is I, you know, as a kid, um, you know, we lost our 80, I was 11 years old in 1980. So we lost our heroes from the boycott when, President Carter boycotted the 1980 games. So the 84 athletes and on the run up to 84 were the heroes from, from my generation. And you were among the royalty that we would see on deck, which is the beautiful part about swimming. So I, I would like to un unpack, I, I want to get into your entertainment career, but I'd like to unpack that the, the pre-1980. So in, in 1980, you were 16 years old. You were the youngest male Olympian on the swim team and on the U.S. team uh, I believe entirely. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was the youngest. Yeah. Of the, of all the summer male Olympians. So it, when you're 16 and you realize how big of a stage that is coming off the 19, the 1970, 72 must've loomed large in your mind. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't start swimming until 1975. So uh, the 72 Olympics were kind of on my radar. However, I wasn't very interested in it. I was kind of like uh, more interested in, you know, hiking and science and, you know, all of that stuff. And I really wasn't paying much attention to the 72 games. However, by the time the 76 games rolled around, uh, I was very interested because I'd started swimming and, and actually, uh, you know, became obsessive over the times and what the world records were. And I was very familiar with everybody and, you know, people like uh, John neighbor and Bruce Furness, and of course, John Hinken, who was my fellow breaststroker, you know, those were the people who I was like watching and emulating and never imagining that I could be, that could be part of my cohort, but somehow wishing my way that I'm going to work as hard as I can and maybe I can get there. For our young listeners out there, uh, the 1976 men's Olympic team is considered the uh, the crown jewel, the best. They are the the stars of our in, in many ways, they had the most success in terms of just metrics and, and brute force wins back when we could have three uh, athletes make the team. I would say, so what's interesting is that that inspired you. But what also is interesting is that I think the 1984 Olympics, which was when you finally got to go, was the LA Games. And that was a unique Games. That was, it, it was done better than any other Games and it was just a, it was a unique moment. Lots of stars and lots of stories came out of that. So these bookend your career to a degree. I know you swam beyond that, but it's just a interesting thing that has just occurred to me right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, of course, the significance of, of being able to compete in my hometown uh, for 84 was not lost on me. However, I think anybody who has attained that level of success, I mean, you're very myopic in your, in your focus and, and uh, out of necessity, I tried not to let all of that stuff swirling around me 
affect, affect me or seep into my brain. I just was focused on the task at hand. So I think I missed out on a lot purposely because I had to, I had to cut all that stuff out of, uh, of my purvey. Let's bring it back to, to your, your run up. Let's just go back. Let's just get real no meta here. When I talk to people who are not swimmers and I explain breaststroke, I say, first of all, I'm not a breaststroker. I've always roomed with breaststrokers, but those are, these are the odd cats. They are, uh, they think differently. Uh, and if you think about breaststroke, it is, it is a stroke where you've got to be perfect. And so when you're on and if you're off, everything is off. It's sort of like a golf swing. What is your breaststroke philosophy? Well, that's a good question. My breaststroke philosophy. You know, it, the foundation was my kick. I knew that the, I knew that my kick was everything. <clears throat> my kick was, I don't know what percentage of my stroke, but a huge percentage, maybe approaching 70%. Um, I had a really, really powerful kick. So if my kick was clicking, then the rest would kind of click. There was the sort of nebulous nature of timing, which you refer to as a golf swing, which I think that's a good metaphor, where, you know, things don't always click, but I was able to, as I rested, it got easier and easier and easier for me to find that spot where my stroke clicked. Now, the stroke back then was very different than the stroke now because the thing that happened between 1984 in 1988 was there was rule change. And the biggest part of that rule change was that you were able to put your head under the water between, you know, at, 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 with kicking, which of course made it much more like your stroke fly um, and <clears throat> ultimately completely changed the timing. So if you look at us way back when, our timing was more that our kick corresponded with the, with, with the moving forward of our arms, the recovery of our arms where now the recovery of your arms is done completely, pretty much completely finished by the time they kick because they're able to dive and go underwater. So we, in essence, were kind of like snow plows or bulldozers plowing through the water. So breaststrokers, yes, they were, they were kind of the freaks in that, you know, their bodies were a little bit different. You know, doing a frog kick is very different than doing, you know, the flutter kick or doing the butterfly kick. Um, and, but we were also, you know, more bruisers, more linebacker, type of, of bodies where, where now I think a lot of breaststrokers, I mean, you have Adam Peaty, who's obviously quite big, but if you're going to compare Adam Peaty with Caleb Dressel, I don't know if you would see, like you would be able to go, oh, that's the breaststroker, right? I, I just don't know. But we were the kind of the bruisers back then. Uh, Caleb Dressel can do anything. He is the, he, he, did you, were you aware that he broke the, the American record in the Hunter breaststroke at the, South, the Southeastern Conference Championships? You, I, that I, was a, I think he broke 50, didn't he? He did. That was an eye-popping moment, and it was sort of weird because it's like, I'm just going to do something different. But uh, I, I love the way you've described it to, to, to everyone who's, who's listening now is that um, you were bulldozers. You were, but breaststrokers, it seemed like they were just, you, you saw their body. They had more muscle mass. They pushed the most water. And the modern breaststroke, as it's changed, um, it's now going in an undulating moment, it's, you're going up and over, over a barrel, up and over a barrel, up yeah. and over a barrel, completely different stroke, far faster too. Way faster. Yeah. The, um, when you were on the run up to, uh, to 1980, you were, you were just a baby. You were only 16. I mean, you had to be completely green, even though you, you, you grew up in SoCal, these kids are a little, they, they develop a little faster. When did you know, I'm great at this and, and, and I could, I could make the Olympic team. It started seeping into my mind that I would it, maybe be able to write a ticket, you know, somewhere other than where I was for my swimming. When I was about 12 years old, um, I started breaking some national age group records. And um, I, you know, I remember being really perplexed. It's like, why am I so much faster? Why, why am I able to do this better than, the other people in Southern California, except for one guy, Ricky Gill. Ricky Gill was, uh, we were always uh, shoulder to shoulder throughout our careers. Um, and, um, but I just, I realized at that point that I was given, I was given something. I was given this weird talent and I didn't understand exactly why I was given it and other people weren't. People who definitely worked just as hard. Um, but there were other great swimmers. Like there was Sippy Woodhead, 
Um, and, and I also had a great example, great examples of people. I was lucky enough to, in 1979, train with Dick Jokums and uh, train with people like Tim Shaw and Bruce Furness, who is, was like probably my main mentor, um, a great breaststroker named Greg Winchell, who unfortunately was killed in 1979, right after uh, the Pan American Games, where he got second to Steve Lundquist. Um, you know, so I had, I had amazing examples. Um, I had an amazing community of very supportive parents. Um, as far as whether, like thinking that I could make the team, I think it was probably summer of 1979, where um, I had a, my breakthrough uh, 200 breaststroke, where I actually finished second at nationals, at the outdoor nationals in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and I beat uh, John Hankin, who, you know, was multiple Olympic gold medal in breaststroke. And I realized at that point, okay, you've arrived and this is, you know, you're in the driver's seat. Let's see what you can do with this. You know, what I heard there was in your response was, um, you know, you, you were, you were wrestling with why do I have this talent? And that's, uh, and, and, you know, that's something that I would expect from a guy who went to Stanford and has had the career you had. You're obviously, you're a very thoughtful person, but is that, uh, was that was that something that you, that you wrestled with? I I I've, I've think about it. I wrestle with it. I and you certainly reflect back when you're older. But it sounds like you were doing it at the time. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, I, for sure. I just I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it, but I knew that it was a gift. I looked upon it as a gift, and I'd be a fool not to see how far I could take it. Were you a? Uh, how would you describe your, your, your competitive spirit? Were you, I'm, I am an assassin. I'm going to take your head off. Or did you, did you shake hands and, and were you buddies with your competitors? Where, where were you on the scale? I don't think anything was any, I, I, I found my relationship with all of my competitors to be completely collegial. Um, we, we, some of one of which Glenn Mills, who beat me by a hundredth of a second in 1980 is to this day, one of my best friends. And, and so not only did we all get along, but we became friends and, you know, Steve Lundquist would definitely be in that category. Um, I never felt the need to, um, to be nasty, to be overtly aggressive outside of the pool. Um, I would leave that all to the, to the race and let that speak for itself because I just didn't see if anybody came up to me and tried, you know, tried to say something you know, to psych me out, I would just look them in the eye and say, why are you trying to psych me out? And that would usually shut them up. It happened a few times. It was, you know, it, that sounds like a really, it seems like when you look at your peers and, and you have certain athletes who are intensely competitive and it can, and can be nasty. And then you, you, and I see someone who can be collegial and has a good perspective on who they are and let and letting the race speak for itself. It seems like it has a lot to do with mom and dad. And, um, it, it, you know, it could be genetic and disposition, but it could be, I think parenting has a lot to do with it. The right coach. What do you, what do you think? I think, I think it's definitely both. I mean, I think by nature, I kind of default to optimistic, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm not, I'm not usually bummed out. I'm usually okay with things. Um, regarding my parents, I remember an instance at Mission Viejo and I was probably about 13 and um, I think it was a 50 breaststroke. And I was very, very focused on times, just laser focused on times. Um, and, uh, and it was a 50 breaststroke and I won by a lot. I think it might've even been a prelims and I won the heat by a lot, but I didn't do the time I wanted to. And I had, I, I displayed displeasure to the point of, I think even slapping the water because I wasn't happy with my time. And I will never forget, my parents said, okay, that's it. So you're scratched from all the rest of events. You're not going back to the meet. I believe that was like a Saturday of a two or three day meet. And they said, we're gone. That was it. And I never did that again. So it sounds like, it sounds like mom and dad shaped your shapes, shaped this, uh, this, um, they made you a gentleman, helped you, helped you along the way. It was important to them that I would be a gentleman. And in fact, they were most proud. They would, they would, they, they wouldn't, you know, they were of course proud of the swimming and everything, but they would always go out of their way when they said, you know, this parent came up to us and said, how wonderful they, you know, that I, 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 I spoke to them and, and, and treated them and 
I gave them time. And um, that was the stuff that they would spend time praising me for, not so much as far as the swimming performance. It's uh, so it's great to have a great, uh, two great sets of parents. It's great to have uh, great to have good parents in your life. I think that buoys you. People will ask me, "Hey, what what is what's the ingredient when in parenting for an elite athlete?" And it's among every all of our peers. The answer is just love your kids, love your kids, show support, and be stable. Um, you needed that uh, in 1980, but it's you were only 16 years old when the boycott happened. I don't want to diminish what that emotional impact was for you, but I think it might have been different for some older swimmers because at 16, it seems like you 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 have a lot of future ahead of you. I don't. How would you characterize it? No, no, that's that's exactly true. Um, you know what I spoke of before, where I'm, I kind of have an optimistic outlook, and I think athletes by and large are optimistic because what they're trying to do is something that's kind of, you know, rather unattainable on normal standards. So you have, to, you have to be optimistic. So I was definitely came out of 1980 and I'm like, okay, what do I need to do next? And what are the steps that I need to take now to go and train for 84? It was, I was very clear. And so, um, you know, each season I would plot out my steps of, of how I might get there. And if there are setbacks, which of course there were, I would then go, okay, what did I learn from that setback? What did I do wrong? What, what could be done better? So that next time I don't have the same setback. If I have a setback, maybe it's something different. Um, so yes, regarding the older athletes, I think that's definitely true. Um, there were a number of people that were able to compete in 72 and 76, like John Hankin being one of them. So I think they felt quite different about the boycott. Um, I think for the most part, if you, if you had a successful games, the boycott didn't hurt quite as badly, whether it be before or after the people that, and I'm friends to this day with many, many of them, the people that I think truly were affected by it were those who didn't get another shot. The painful part about 1980 was being denied your shot in, 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 by an outside force. All of us just want to go in and compete on our, own, on our own terms. Whether we fall flat on our faces or whether we win the gold medal, you know, that's all we're asking for. But to be denied that is the most painful part. And then of course, not having a second chance makes it, I think, painful into the future. It, it's there's here's for our audience. There's a great example of people recovering seemingly fast. It's like, you know, a, a voice of the Olympic games at NBC, Rowdy Gaines, you know, by that NC two A's in 1981, he was a 133, 200 yard freestyle seemed like, and, and this guy was, was in the hunt to win quite a few medals in 1980. That was, that oh, was yeah. his games. Right. Uh, but he recovered in 81. When did, when did you recover? Like how fast was it? How, because I imagine, you know, that, that's, that summer was not just losing the Olympics. That was a wash. That was, a, that was an emotional crater. Uh, how, long did it how long did it take you to bounce back? I don't, I don't really remember. I do remember I didn't have a very good season in 81. Uh, but I don't, I don't remember cratering per se. Um, I, I do remember being really bummed out. I wasn't necessarily angry. I think I was disillusioned. I think that was my first time realizing that the world can be a cruel place and that there are forces much bigger and much more powerful than you were able to control. And so perhaps that was like a cautionary tale for me and realizing that you really have to do everything within your ability to prepare for the unexpected. Just as I, I want to keep following your, your historic timeline, but just to, as an aside, um, things define us. You know, uh, if yeah. I could say that certain things define me, birth of my child, right. uh, winning in an Olympics, um, the death of my father, mm -hmm. uh, married, you know, getting married. I've been married 22 years, mm -hmm. but it's uh, world championships was a unique moment in my career. What, what was 80? Like, where does, how did 80 shape you in terms of, to No. No, I don't, I don't think it, it shaped me later in life. It, it shaped me, it shaped me more when I gained some perspective 
you know, when 84 didn't go like I had, I had planned. Um, and, um, you know, I realized that those moments are fleeting. Those moments are the moments that, uh, you know, everybody realizes that being able to compete in the Olympic games is a defining moment in their lives. Love it or hate it. That's just the way it is. Um, and when it passes you by, it is, it is certainly painful. Um, and I think, I think as I, as I, as I got older and gained perspective on things, I was acutely aware of the injustice of, of boycotting 1980 summer games because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And of course, you know, all those, it became plainly clear to me, what, 15, 20 years ago, that it was just wrong. Where, you know, at the time, you know, you could argue both sides. It's like, okay, are we avoiding, you know, like, you know, the, the vice president Mondale said, you know, we're avoiding World War III in essence, you know, by, by taking our stand and not competing in, in Moscow. Um, so I think that, I think maybe my perspective was more nuanced. And I also started realizing, you know, you think, okay, it's my destiny or what does it mean for me to go and compete in the Olympic games? You know, there's all these lofty ideals that all of us are rattling in our heads um, but what does it, what it really means is it just really means crappy stuff happens and crappy stuff happens to everybody. And, and it's, it's what you do with that. It's how you, how you deal with those, those setbacks. You know, you mentioned like the death of your father, for example, it's like, how do you deal with that? We all have to deal with that. And, and that is something that I hope that I've been able to, um, be successful at because, for the most part, I've, I'm, you know, a pretty happy, satisfied guy with the way things have gone. Um, but 1981 was, uh, wasn't the best year, was it, but you're also from an era where people did what a lot of coaches will call honest work. Cause I, I, you know, there are a lot of elites now they're they get their base in. And then from when they're winning all their medals and going to Olympics after Olympics, which is what you do now, you know, they're doing a lot of, uh, very precise training. It's not just grinding. Were you a grinder? No, I don't think by nature, both physical or mentally. Uh, however, however, it was, it was very clear if you wanted to, perhaps it was, it was, it was wrongheaded of, of the prevailing wisdom back then. Uh, but it was a blunt instrument. I mean, the notion that, I would go 20,000 meters at the beginning of summer and I'm a sprint breaststroker is completely absurd. Absolutely absurd. And, and again, back to my, my parents and my coaches and, and the way they guided me, I didn't do doubles until college. I didn't really do weights in any sort of meaningful way um, until college and even then backed off on it. So, um, so I think my, my instincts were that I needed to back off a little bit, that I needed a little bit more rest, that, you know, like to have me train like Jeff Kostoff. Of course, I didn't train like Jeff Kostoff, but it, the, the mentality was if you want to be that good, you had to put that sacrifice in and that you had to do those 20,000 meter days, you know, at the beginning of summer, if you wanted to be the best. That was the prevailing wisdom. Jeff Kostoff, yeah, yeah. I love I love you pulling Jeff Kostoff in here. Four sixteen, five hundred yard freestyle, at a high school. Uh, mm-hmm. Swam with you at Stanford. Now the associate head coach of the University of Minnesota. Correct. Uh, and his sixteen fifty American record, I think, stood for in excess of a decade. If I'm not. Yeah, he was he was a crazy man. He was he was a, he was uh, his career spilled into mine. And he was like a mentor. He was like a yeah. bad mentor. He was a very. I'm just gonna put it out there and call it. I'm calling you out, Kostoff. I love you, buddy. You're a bad mentor. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a he's a lunatic. <clears throat> I mean, I will never That's forget fun. my sophomore year, which would have been his freshman year, Christmas training, which of course was the most hellacious time any for any collegiate swimmer. Um, and I remember one day he got it in his mind that he was going to go four five thousands on the 50 minutes. And like just the notion that anybody that it's humanly possible to go 20,000 yards holding under a minute was like beyond any of us. And and so he started them and we did our regular two hour workout and we were all in the stands watching him and he did it and he descended them. I, I like 
lunatic, crazy man, unbelievably talented. And his Olympic accolades certainly don't reflect the immense talent and influence that he had on his era. And he's an exceptional coach. He's a great coach. He is tough. And, uh, I'm sure. and his athletes respect him. They, I, I do. It, I, I've stepped away from swimming for a long time, but when I got back on deck, I'm like, my wife's like, why didn't you coach? I'm like, I, d- I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I, I feel like the commitment's too big I, and I've done this. I don't want to do it, but I, I do watch coaches and I, and I look to see how do the athletes respect them and do they have their loyalty when, when it's over, when their career is done. And I, and that's something that, that you see with Jeff. I like that. I like that about, right, about yeah. it. Yeah. He's this, another one of my lifelong friends, by the way. Yeah. He's a, he's a sweetheart. Yeah. The, uh, so it, between, you know, on the run up to 84, you were, you, you were, you were a star. You were one of the the biggest stories. What were, what were the benchmarks between 80 and 84 where you gained confidence and you're, you're rolling into the 84 LA games and you're like, you're, you're building the strength. What, what, what rewired your brain? Well, there was this guy named Steve Lundquist who was kind of like in the way of what I wanted to do. Um, and, and Steve was a larger than life, is a larger than life uh, personality and talent. I mean, and we all knew it. Uh, you know, little secret is Steve would like everybody to think he doesn't work very hard or he, he, he wasn't competitive. He just would always have kind of like that Southern laid back kind of persona. But man, that guy was really, really intense. And uh, he was a formidable, formidable adversary. And he was, he was always like, to me, it's like, he was, he was always that thing that if I wanted to achieve what I wanted to achieve, I had to beat him. And um, in 1982 world championships, it was him and Victor Davis. Basically I got two bronzes. It was him and Victor Davis. And um, in the hunter breast, I really was in my heart believed, okay, this is, this could be my breakout performance. And I just, I just screwed up my turn. I screwed up my turn in the hunter breast. I just didn't hit, hit it right. And, um, and ended up getting third, but I, I knew at that point, it's like, okay, you got this, you got this, just don't screw up your turn next time. Um, and, and then in 83, um, I was in college by this point. Um, and, and 83 was the Pan Am games in Caracas, Venezuela. And I had a really bad trials. In fact, I didn't make the team in the 200 breaststroke, which was before the 100 breaststroke. Um, I mean, I was gutted. I, I couldn't believe that I didn't make the team in the 200 breaststroke. It just was not, it, it, I just like, I couldn't believe it. So suddenly the 100 breaststroke coming up in a few days, like had a heavy weight placed upon it. And, and so thankfully I felt better. And Steve beat me once again, but I had a good swim. I did my best time and made the team. Um, so I was able to go to Caracas um, for the 200, for the 100 breaststroke, not the 200 breaststroke. And it was one of those things, you know, I just missed my taper at the trials. I just missed it. And like a few days after the trials, I was like, damn, I feel better now than I did last week. I'm like, okay, just hold on to this. And I, I, they weren't more than like a week and a half apart. And it just, I just nailed my taper um, for the, for the Pan Am games. And I was like, okay, here we go. And unfortunately, Steve beat me. I believe it was a few hundredths of a second, but we both, both broke the world record. And that's when I'm like, okay, I can do this. You know, you break a world record the first you know, and I, granted, the first time I broke a world record, Steve was faster. So he didn't really break the world record. He did it first. But I knew it. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm set up good for 84. It's uh, 80, 84 was, there was so much anticipation rolling into it. And, and, and if you were from my generation, you, were, you guys were our heroes. And I, I felt like just, it felt like this was a, a test of the Olympics. Like the Olympics might be in jeopardy. Like can, it, can the Olympics go on? And Peter Uberoth hosted an incredible Olympic Games. I think it was the only games that's been profitable in the last 50 years. Yeah. But it was cool. It was a cool games. 
And it was just, I think everyone, there was so much demand and so much hunger for the 84 games. In fact, that it was in Los Angeles, Hollywood games. It was pretty amazing. Um, well, I mean, let me, let me tell you, I mean, your assessment is right. The, the Olympic movement almost died. The, the, it, was, it was almost a death blow to the USOC back then, now the USOPC. The USOC, um, that they weren't able to send a team in 1980. They were barely getting by. They were going by, they're, they're getting by on fumes. Like the 19, the, in, in 1979, 1980, and then the early 80s, like the USOC was in a, a retired army barracks. I believe it was army. Anyway, military barracks. Like the cinder block, it, there was no frills. It was like kind of ramshackle offices. And I mean, it was, it, it was so different back then. And, and basically nobody after, you know, between, you know, 72 and the tragedy of, uh, of 72 and the Israeli athletes, 76, the financial, complete financial meltdown of Montreal due to the eight, uh, 76 Olympics. And then 80 was a da- disaster because, you know, so many people boycotted. So people were really gun shy. And, and so, you know, Peter Ubrah thankfully had the vision. It's like, listen, this is the path to our future, our path to salvation. We need to privatize some of this and like get, you know, get corporations to come in and, and, and use this to help support the games and bolster the games. And it was just a confluence of brilliant, brilliant management and vision um, and at a time that I believe the world really, really needed it. I think the, the late 70s, early 80s, people were really kind of like, oh, man, this is, this is a bummer. We're living in bummer times. And I think in so many ways, the 84 games, especially for here in the United States, and I don't know internationally, I think it was an antidote to that. And you were on at that time at trials. Is, is it correct that that was, so that was your first, that was your world record 102.13. Yeah. And that was uh, where you won. Yes. And yeah. so, so how did it feel? I mean, had, had, is it a situation where, you know, I, I, I'd be Lundquist on, you know, on and off all season. This was, was that a new experience or was that like, yeah, I, I got him that time. It was a new experience. That's the first time I beat him. And, and are, are you kidding me? Like nobody beat Steve Lundquist. Nobody, nobody. They really didn't. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, he was on, and I was on, and I was just honor. <laughs> That's it. And I felt that way. It's like, okay, Steve, you you know, you had a good swim too. And but uh, but yeah, I was I was in the zone. I was like, okay, here we go. Let's let's bring it. As as a child, remembering back to that, the the big stories were Steve was a huge story. You were a big mm-hmm. story. Tracy Hawkins. Uh, rowdy. Uh, it seems like some athletes were were were, were past their prime and, and are just over the edge and and really hanging on. And uh, but it, one of the most dramatic stories was was your event, and it was because of the injury in prelims, which is like who gets injured in in racing. And it was uh, can can you unpack that for us and, and and paint a picture? Sure. I mean, it's side note. It's first and only time I was ever injured in a race. It just happened to be the biggest race in my life, which, you know, who knows why it just happened. Uh, I was, when I, when I was on in, when I said I was on at the trials, I was way on for the games. I was never training faster in my life. I was like pushing fifties in practice. That was like, I, I was just like, really? That's what I'm pushing in a 50. I was, I felt really, really good and really strong. And I was really, I was really stoked. I felt very good going into those games. And, um, and so the prelims come around and I didn't, I, we, we were shaving down during the opening ceremonies because it was the first men's event of swimming and the first men's event other than cycling, I believe of the entire Olympic games. So there was all this pent up, pent up demand. And you could just feel it. It's just electric. Um, and uh, it wasn't lost on me. I remember looking around thinking, okay, soak this in, soak this in. This is, you know, this is, this is, a, this is an honor to be here. This is a gift of all gifts. And this is where I trained for, for half of my life. And, and so um, needless to say, I, I got in, uh, you know, they started um, and, and I felt great. I felt really, really good. And 
Uh, I remember, you know, just like most prelim swims, you just want to like get that easy speed. You want to set that. Okay. And, and so I knew I had that easy speed and I wasn't going, I wasn't, I, I wasn't going hard. I wasn't going for a record kind of, it was just get through to finals. And uh, I touched the wall and did my underwater pull. And I remember I came up and the crowd, like it was a explosion of sound, which I'd never experienced before because there were 15,000 people there. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, oh, I must be going pretty good. And also, you know, you take a little glance, you look at the turn and I was, <clears throat> I believe pretty much everybody was at my knees at the, you know, at, the, at best. And I'm like, okay, all right, let's just bring it home. And I don't know if you do this with fly, I assume you, you do, but with breaststroke, especially, you never just come off the underwater pole and just go boom, hit it hard. You know, you, you, you set the stroke and then you build. And usually it was like three, took me three strokes in order to get like that feel where I could, okay, let's, and, and I'm like, okay, let's, let's build into this and, um, and just bring it home and uh, sort of like test my fitness and see how I feel and, and don't push it too hard. And it was about probably the fifth or sixth stroke out of the wall. It just, it just went, it's like, I felt my leg go. Hamstring. No, it was the adductor magnus, which is, what is that? That's the big muscle between your legs that helps you squeeze your legs. It's the big muscle used in breaststroke. Oh, pain. It was about probably about probably eight, eight or 10 inches above my knee is where the muscle actually pulled apart. So how do you get to the wall? Well, adrenaline. I mean, you've been injured before. I mean, any, any athlete, when, when you get when the initial injury, oftentimes the pain is, you know, it, you know, when you do something like that, but you can, you know, you can get through it. I'm like, okay, let's just get through it. Um, I was panicking on the inside, but I also had enough swims under my belt to know that you can't, you have, you can only panic on the inside. Don't panic on the outside and just, you know, keep it, keep it in check. But um, you know, if you see that race and you see my reaction when I touch the wall and you see the expletive that spews out of my mouth, much to my mother's chagrin, um, you know that I was like, oh no, this is really bad. It's, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering what's, what's, what, you know, what's going through your head what are you feeling sitting there? I, it, I understand, I understand the reaction, the emotion, but it's like, it, it's a, how long did it take to, to sink in? Cause you're, you're still having hope that something's going to be okay. Like you can, you can recover from this. Maybe you get into in a little therapy and you're, and you're back. When, yeah. What was that process? Well, the, the way it worked is I did my normal warm down. Um, I don't, I, um, I, 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 it was in the diving well. I did the normal warm down. And on the inside, I'm like, I'm like really, really bombed. I'm like, oh no, this is really, really bad. And I'd never, ever, ever injured that part of my leg before. I tweaked out my knees and stretched my ankles, and but I've I'd never done that before. <clears throat> um, a little side note: I had in practice a couple of weeks before, I felt a little pain in that muscle, so I must have injured it. And but I felt fine. I, I laid off of it for for a few days, but. I, and, and felt fine afterwards. And I just forgot about it. It was like a, kind of a nagging pain, but it must've been more severe than I had thought. Where it really started sinking in was, um, I was actually, you know, back in the dorms at USC and then we were at the dorms right next to the pool. And um, I was on a bottom bunk. And I remember, um, I remember like laying on the bottom bunk and looking, looking up at the top bunk. And I remember feeling like the entire world was collapsing on me. Um, and at various times through the day, coaches and, and, and doctors and trainers were coming in and, and treating me. But um, I think fairly soon after that race, maybe within a couple of hours, I had, I'd realized that that's it. It's not, it's not going to work. Um, you know, Captain Optimistic Man or no, I was not going to be able to, to pull it off. Um, so at that point, it was just mitigate the damage and hope and hail Mary for a miracle. Um, however, I also, you know, I mean, Steve Lundquist, I mean, I, I could barely beat him when I was feeling the best of my life. So I knew I wasn't going to beat Steve. Um, so uh, 
you know, I guess all I could hope for was a medal. Um, where where I got, had the biggest setback was was when I got in to warm up. Um, and and one of the unique things about those games, and I don't know if they do that now, they, they probably do. But back then they, they, they would, you would be standing at the edge of the warm-up pool and the announcer, because there would be tens, like 10,000 people there. And they actually said, John Moffat is in lane four about to warm up. And I'm like, oh no, oh, this is horrible. Because all I wanted was to see if I could kick breaststroke. And, you know, there's, I, I, I seem to remember there were four or five people at the end of my, my lane and I got in and, 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 you know, did a little bit of freestyle. And then I'm like, okay, let's give it a try. And I couldn't kick breaststroke. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Got to the, you know, other end of the pool. And I came back. I was like, okay, let's see if I can loosen this up. And I could not do it. I couldn't do it. It was just too painful. Um, and so I remember like looking up at, the doctors and coaches and everything at the end of my lane, it's like, I can't do it. And I got out of the water and that's when the doctors pulled me aside and said, listen, there's some, there's some things that we can do, um, namely basically numb it up. So um, I went back in a back tent, one of the, one of the medical treatment tents. Um, and keep in mind, I didn't get to warm up. So uh, I didn't know what I was going to do at this point, but I was in one, I was in the back tent and, and they, um, they started to inject me um, and, and they were giving me what I believe was called xylocaine and they were injecting basically directly into the muscle. And that's, you know, that's not the, that's a little tender spot to get, you know, multiple shots into. And they were like big shots. <clears throat> and, uh, and so, and then what they did is they, they sprayed some stuff on the leg because, you know, you, you're kind of probably had a lot of oil from getting all the rub downs and stuff. So like the stickum, I think it was, I think it was like stickum. It was almost like adhesive. And then they took like tape, athletic tape and wrapped it around my leg to try to hold it, hold it together. Well, by this time, um, you know, the pre or the finals of the women's hundred free was going on. And that's when Carrie Steinseifer and Nancy Hawks had tied. And um, so there's all this going on around you. And I'm, I, and I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, this is just so, this is, this is no fun at all. And uh, so I was able to get in and, and uh, they allowed, the officials allowed me to get into the diving pool, which was the same part of the facility. And there are 15 plus thousand people there. And I was the only one on the deck aside from maybe an usher or something like that. And I remember just all eyes, you know, you could tell all eyes, like what's John doing on the deck. And that was the first inkling that my mom had that I wasn't, my parents had that things weren't right. And I was, because I was numb basically from like, below my belly button to my knee, um, I was able to, I, I was able to muster up the strength to kick, but it was like a noodle. Um, so I did, I don't know how many laps I did, maybe six or eight, you know, laps in the, in the diving pool and, uh, and said, okay, let's go. And I believe I was up on the blocks within like 15 minutes of that. This one, the finals. Treated you like a professional football player. They just <laughs> numb it up, send pros, it back in. Pros play hurt, right? That was the, that was probably the prevailing philosophy back then. Yeah. And it's, here's the thing. If you're, you swim your whole life, you get fifth place at the Olympic games. That's uh, that's a big deal. That's, that's great. Uh, I, for some reason it, it, it felt like when I watched as a child that it was that like the entire narrative was you, the, the commentary was you. And it, it actually was, it just seemed like this, the focus of, of, of the reporting was your story because it was so dramatic. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the great thing about the Olympics is we are caught up in it. Is it something where you watch it? Have you, have you want, did you like not watch that race for many, many years or do you I, go I back actually, and watch it? No, no, I, I, I didn't watch it. I, I, I'll, I'll, well, first I'll say the, I hadn't seen the broadcast of that swim since I, I watched it a few days afterwards there was a place where you could go and uh at, at the at, uh, in the village the olympic village and you can go and you could watch your watch your races um so i watched it then and that was and, and then i saw it again this past year um when for a, a dear friend of mine i was doing um you know a zoom clinic with uh with this uh, high school swim team 
and they showed it. And that's the first time I had seen it since uh, 84 at the village. Um, and, and so uh, to answer your question, no, I kind of, kind of avoid that. Um, but this, the side note is that I had to watch, um, watch it many times because um, one of the fortunate things that came out of my Olympic games was that Bud Greenspan uh, featured me in his film, 16 Days of Glory. Um, and, and so it was a feature on Rowdy and I, um, and, and how, how, you know, Rowdy overcame all the obstacles of aging. And I was the young buck coming up and that we, you know, how our stories kind of were in parallel. And, um, and so because of that film and because of all the touring and the speaking that I did in, you know, for that film, uh, and for Bud Greenspan, I did see the, uh, the race multiple times, you know, in the mid eighties, um, and Bud Greenspan became my mentor and the ultimate, probably the, the catalyst behind me deciding to go into the entertainment. It, 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 yes, it immortalized you. And everybody that swam or was a you know, young kid or an athlete, we, we, we watched it. Uh, we watched 16 Days of Glory, which is why I introduced you that way. It's, uh, <laughs> was Michael Gross in, there, in the 16 Days of Glory as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. in fact, in fact, uh, I, I back then I spoke spoke a little German. I could do a little conversational German, so we actually spoke German together. <clears throat> and you know, there's so many there's so many watershed moments that happened in '84. But one of them was that there was a there was a rudimentary email, and none of us had ever seen it before. But it was like a closed circuit email where you could email any one of the other athletes, and and so you would sit there and email all these all these athletes, <clears throat> and one of the athletes that I emailed was, was Michael Gross. Um, and he was, he was very kind to me and he was very understanding um, actually on the pool deck. And, and he, he pulled me aside and said, I'm very sorry what happened. He was really, really nice about it and very caring about it. So I wrote him a thank you note in German for, for uh, you know, for showing me, for showing me kindness and, and, and understanding. And he wrote me back and I still have the printout of those emails today. Yeah. The further, the, so the further you get from, from your career and you, you had, you had success, you, you went on, you, you swam through 86, you, you represented Stanford, you won three goals at the Pan Pacific championships was the first one, the first iteration of that new event Yeah, is now called the Pan Pacific games. Right. But uh, you know, is it true that the older we get, the, the less the, the medals matter? Is that, uh, is that, is that your experience? I think I, well, you know, 85, I think is a little bit different. I, I had a, I had a, I had a lot to prove. Um, you know, I actually had people in 84 say, you know, kind of like, were you really that injured? You know, um, kind of, kind of alleged that and it was it like really stung. And, and so I just had a lot to prove now. Now, I mean, on the grand scheme of things in my career, it was, it was great. I, I was very fortunate to be on Stanford at the time that I was, at Stanford because, you know, I was able to not only win individual champions, but more championships, but more importantly, uh, I was able to my junior and senior year win the team championships, which was, which was definitely without a doubt, the highlight of my swimming career. But in 85, I really wanted to prove to the international stage. It's like, okay, I was real. I was real. And this was a fluke. And so I think that was first and foremost in my mind. And I satisfied I ended up being first in the world in both the 100 and 200 breaststroke that year. And the, the their Pan Pacific Games now, and uh, we owe the the glory of the Pan Pacific Games to John Moffat. So no, you're hardly. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing: a lot of people that you know, everybody that know, we're all adults now. When our career is just this this piece of our personality that connects us. But you had a very energetic entertainment career. And uh, anybody, all of all the peers are like, if you wanted to have any questions about entertainment or that industry or what was going on, it's like, oh, you need to talk to John. You need to talk to John. Uh, and we, I called, I said that you were an Emmy, three, three time primetime Emmy award winner. And that was from uh, The Amazing Race. But you have an, an extraordinary list of credits. Are there any, any, any of these credits where you're like, I'm really proud of that. I, people ought to take a look at that. Because I can list it off right here, but you know, maybe... Maybe you're like, yeah, this is what you need to see of my work. Oh, I, you know, I, I don't know about that. I think, I think at some point, uh, aside from winning those Emmys, it became, became very clear that it was also a vocation. And I just happened to choose the entertainment industry because it, 
allows you a big dose of creativity. And, and I always liked exercising that storytelling create, creative part of my brain. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of analog, I'm not as digital, right? So, so the entertainment business kind of, you know, fit what I wanted to do and I wanted to tell stories. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 did, I did that. Um, I would say probably the first sports documentary that I ever did um, was, I believe it was 2000, 2001. And it was the, one of the precursors to 30 for 30 on ESPN. And it was a documentary about a pioneering football, pro football player and coach, a guy named Fritz Pollard. And Fritz Pollard was the first African-American to be in the Rose Bowl, first African-American quarterback in the NFL, and first African head coach in the NFL. However, he was forgotten through the ages. And so that was the whole, like that was the gist behind the story. Here is this guy who was the best of the best and the pioneer of pioneers. Um, you know, the, the Jackie Robinson of football 30 years prior um, who has been forgotten. And so it was a really, really great documentary, very rewarding. I found, I uncovered like some fantastic footage of him back in the day. And I even uncovered a long lost interview that he did with Bud Greenspan um, in the seventies. Crazy, crazy cool, magic happened. And, and three or four years later, he was, uh, he was elected in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And you know, for that, it's like, that's about the best you can ask for in an entertainment business. You know, people are watching and usually it's just, you know, you, oftentimes you're producing this drivel that you know people will like but this one actually moved the needle. And for that, I'm exceedingly proud. And I will always be proud of the Fritz Pollard story on ESPN. Storytelling is what makes the world turn. It's the oldest profession. It's, uh, I love it. And, and, and to do it the way you've done it is uh, to have that skill in your back pocket. It, it, you must feel really empowered now that you're doing Sports Life Balance, the podcast. Oh. Talk about yeah. it. Yeah, my podcast, I think my, the, the podcast, you know, kind of came about through varying forces. Um, I was, uh, I tried to get my, a documentary about the 1980 boycott made for years and years and years. And I probably know just a little bit too much about the history of that boycott and the, you know, the, the games in the, in, in, in the late seventies, early, early eighties. And long story short, uh, I was partnered with LeBron James and his companies and all of us agreed in our initial meetings. It's like, if we cannot get this made with LeBron James, we can't get it made. And sure enough, after a couple of false starts, we didn't get it made. And that, that happened at the beginning of, of 2020, mm -hmm. um, where I ultimately like realized, okay, I think it's time to wind down my career. And I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something, um, wanted to do something that was fulfilling to me. And I wanted to do something that also leveraged, leveraged my skill set as a, you know, as a storyteller. So I decided to launch this podcast, um, plus the pandemic, you know, I mean, it was something that I could do. Um, the working in the entertainment business, especially for a majority of 19, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, for 2020, uh, wasn't, wasn't a viable option. So it was kind of sprung out of, of that. Um, and, and the whole idea is that um, the, the great things about sports and the great lessons from sports and how they can be carried into life. And how do those lessons can inspire and can, can help people with a, uh, um, create a more fulfilling life. The, all the lessons that we, we as athletes have, have learned. It, it's, I want to talk to you about a little bit more about your podcast, but I also want to know, so when did you become the president of the Southern California uh, Olympians and Paralympians? Yeah, the Southern California Olympians and Paralympians is basically the alumni association for here in Southern California. And it's a chapter, it's the oldest chapter and it's the biggest chapter in the country. Um, it came about, I was kind of reluctant. You know what I mean? If you ever read Joseph Campbell, you know, there's always like, you know, the, the, the journey to what you're supposed to be doing. There's always, there's, there's always resistance. You always resist. And um, I, was, I was asked to be on that board and I kind of reluctantly, I, I really turned my back on the whole Olympic and Paralympic movement wasn't super interested in it. I, I'm far, far, far from being uh, any sort of swimming scholar anymore. I haven't really paid, you know, attention to it, honestly. And so it was 2016 that I was asked to be on that board. 
And it was within a year or so after that um, the then president, uh, Tamar Christofferson, um, was, uh, was moving. And uh, she was gonna move to Colorado and she eventually ended up marrying uh, Olympic gold medalist, Joey Cheek, um, who, and, and, and she, now she has a, a kid and had really moved on with her life. But with her moving on, it left that space vacant. And her and the board asked me if I would be interested in taking up that spot. And again, I, I was kind of resistant, but I said, what the heck? Um, and what I found was that I really, really enjoyed um, the camaraderie. I really enjoyed uh, the shared experience and the shared love and the shared heartbreak that all of us Olympians and Paralympians have. Um, and there's there's magic there, and it's it's a it's a very exclusive and a wonderful club to be part of. So I just decided, what the heck? Let's see if I can just create events and do stuff for all of us to get together and. Um, that's, you know, that's basically, that's basically what it is. Southern California <laughs> Olympian and Paralympian Association is a big deal. It's powerful. I, mean, I, I know it's, I, know, I understand it's alumni, but it's like, there, there's just so much talent, which is beautiful because you, you are, you know, you are connected to so many peers and you're connected across all sports. And, um, and that's going to be great for the podcast. Uh, in, in, indeed, uh, it's it's hopefully hopefully is great for the podcast. Um, yes, I am connected. I'm getting more and more connected. Um, however, you know, there's there's, you know, I, I also want to turn the podcast inside out. I don't always want to just start with athletes and go to life. You know, um, one of uh, my first podcast actually was with the actor Timothy Oliphant, and Timothy Oliphant was a swimmer, and most people forgotten that Timothy was a was a, was a swimmer, but I swam with him one summer and he was a, he was a swimmer at USC. And, and so I was like, okay, so how do I, how do I stretch this? Um, and, and so, you know, the fact that he's a world renowned Hollywood star um, and hearing about the lessons that he learned from swimming that lend themselves to him becoming the great person and great actor that he is now. And, and it's, you know, that's that's a, a different angle. I want to I want to also want to inter, interview scholars, people who athletes are a big part of or athletics are a big part of their life. But you know what what is it about athletics? What is the universality of getting in and swimming or going out for a run or whatever athletic endeavor you choose? What what is that? What is what is the magic there? What is the zen? What is what is what is the magnetism that exists? Um, we, we know in our heart that it's there. We just, it's harder to define what it is. For our young folks out there who might not know who Timothy Elephant is, just so you know, he's, he is a, he is a drop dead, good looking leading man. Also done some care, a lot of character work. His credits are way too long. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my wife worked at William Morris and she, she remembered when he would come in as a client and he had, she's like, he had the coolest hair and. <laughs> black fingernails and so anyway he was a finalist i think he was a finalist in the 200 im at nationals one summer i, I believe you're right yeah mm -hmm. yeah cool cat i like the mix i like what you're bringing to the table for sports life balance that's is it's definitely something that i want to drop in on but uh you know john this, this is this has been a pleasure to, to talk to you I, would you come back because i'm sure we could find more topics oh of course i'd be happy to like i said at the beginning it's always fun to chat with you through the decades we'll get to meet up here and there and it's it's always so much fun even though we didn't necessarily share national team experiences together or olympic team experiences together it's that that shared experience that uh you know we all have in common we got a few we got a, we got a minute or two left just just out of curiosity um you know for, you're you're an intelligent worldly man uh, <laughs> what what is it what are the, what are our chances look like in 2021 with hosting an olympic games well, I'd, again, going back to me being Captain Ob, Captain Captain Obvious, Captain <laughs> Optimist. I'm Captain Optimist, not Captain Obvious. Hopefully, um, I'm very optimistic that 2021 will happen. I think we're it's 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 one of those things where there's a will, there's a way. Um, the the collective the collective will of the Olympic and Paralympic movement is is immense. And the stakes of not having them go are also immense. Um, so I think I think that 
I, I, if, if I was a betting person, and I'm not, uh, that, that, that they're going to go. It, they might look uh, a bit different from uh, games of the past, but they will go. I'm certainly, uh, certainly optimistic. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcasts on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.